I grew up in an era where there was no such thing as 24-hour news, no such thing as, certainly no such thing as 24-hour sports, and I love sports. And so, as a young man growing up, when I grew up, if you wanted to find out what was going on in the world of sports, you read the newspaper, or if you wanted to see what was going on in the world of sports, you tuned in on Saturday afternoons and you watched ABC's Wide World of Sports. I lived for Saturday afternoons. And indelibly etched into my mind, and I think everybody who watched that program, was the line in the show where it talked about the thrill of victory, and it showed the joy of the winner, and then the, what, agony of defeat. And that poor fellow who tried to chicken out on the ski jump falls down, falls off the side week after week after week. That's kind of what Israel is experiencing as we come now into Joshua chapter 7. You know, we, you're, you're getting a three-week uh, overview of the book of Joshua. One, God tells them to take the land, be strong and courageous, for He will never leave them nor forsake them. Second, Jesus comes to Joshua and says, I'm in charge, you follow me, and you will have victory. Now, today comes that painfully critical lesson. You see, Israel has just come off a magnificent defeat in Jer victory in Jericho where God has caused the walls to fall down. They have swept through the city. The land of Canaan is quaking in fear of Israel. But now they come to a whole different reality. They've experienced the thrill of victory. Now comes the agony of defeat. And what causes the defeat? Let's read Joshua chapter 7. But the Israelites acted unfaithfully in regard to the devoted things. Now, the devoted things comes out of God's command that everything you take in the land belongs to me. It is either to come into the storehouse of God, those things that are valuable, or it is to be put to death and destroyed, but everything is mine, nothing belongs to you. I'm giving you the land, but everything in it is mine. That was God's very clear command. And now we find it doesn't take long for Israel to be unfaithful. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, to the east of Bethel, and told them, Go up and spy out the regions. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, Not all the people have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and do not weary all the people, for only a few men are there. So about three thousand men went up, but they, were, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about thirty-six of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this the heart of the people melted and became like water." 
Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same, sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Ah, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. That which is devoted is among you, O Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove it. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe. The tribe that the Lord takes shall come forward clan by clan. The clan that the Lord takes shall come forward family by family. And the family that the Lord takes shall come forward man by man. He who is caught with the devoted thing shall be destroyed by fire, along with all that belongs to him. He has violated the covenant of the Lord and has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua had Israel come forward by tribes, and Judah was taken. The clans of Judah came forward, and he took the Zerahites. He had the clan of the Zerahites come forward by families, and Zimri was taken. Joshua had his family come forward man by man, and Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give him the praise. Tell me what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I have done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They are hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was, hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold wedge, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor, 
or the valley of trouble ever since. The Christmas of 1993. I had four sons. The youngest would have been about, I don't know, 10. And I decided uh, it was time for them to have a rite of passage as young men. It was time to buy them their first BB guns. That was a big thing, big time in my life as a boy, you know. Uh, And I thought we lived in a place where they could go out and shoot. I said, it's time. My wife thought I was an idiot. But that wasn't the first time she'd thought that. So I pressed on. I wrapped them up, put them under the tree. That morning they were open to much excitement and anticipation. After the presents were opened and breakfast was done and things were cleaned up, they got their BB guns out and we sat down and we had the talk. We talked about safety. We talked about how to handle the gun. We talked about the things you do and the things you don't do with a BB gun. Showed them how to load it, how to aim it, how to shoot it. And then we ended the talk with this very clear, stern warning. If I ever see or even hear of you pointing this gun at another person, or at anything I have told you you may not point it at, I will take it away for one year. I made them repeat it. I wanted to make sure it was clearly understood. And it was. And so they got their coats on, we got ready, we went out into the back pasture to begin shooting. And we're coming out of the house, you know, trickling out, there's five of us, and a couple of the older boys go out first, and then the another son, and then I come walking out with with one of my sons, and as we're walking to the pasture, he's lagging slightly behind me, and all of a sudden, I hear the gun cock, and my blood begins to boil. I'm thinking, it's already happened, and I turned around to watch him taking dead aim at one of his brothers. (laughs) He pulls the trigger and shoots his brother square in the middle of the back, His brother, who is the drama queen of the family, begins flopping around on the ground like he's going to die, and he is screaming. The other boys are smiling, and I turn to my son, ready to explode, and he simply looks at me, walks over, hands me the gun, and says, it was worth it. (laughs) How do you deal with that? It was worth it. You know, as I thought about that, it was simply a picture of how we all typically approach the sins we like. We know it's wrong. We know God has commanded us not to do certain things, but somewhere in the deep, dark recesses of our hearts and minds, we live with the attitude, but it is worth it. It gives me what I want. It makes me feel the way I want to feel. And surely God understands that. I have heard my own soul repeat that phrase over and over and over again. Surely God understands. Surely I'm an exception. 
Surely this sin doesn't matter. And what we find out this morning is, oh, yes, it does. The reality of our lives, particularly those of us who claim to be the followers of Jesus, is that we not only live in the presence of, but we have been loved by an eternal God who is infinitely holy. And whether we like it or not, whether we think it's fair or not, He has called us to be the same, whether we can or not. Our sin was so awful, is so awful, that it required the Son of God to experience the realities of death and hell for us to pay its penalty. God does not take our sin lightly. God does not overlook sin. And if we understand the love of God for us, we cannot either. And the lesson that Israel learns here in chapter 7 is how seriously God regards sin because of how much He loves them. And there are three things I want us to consider this morning regarding God's attitude and our attitude towards sin. And the first is this. Our sin affects us. One of the great lies of Satan is that sin really doesn't matter. I mean, he began with that line in the garden. He comes to Adam and Eve and he says, you know that's not true. You're not going to die if you eat that piece of fruit. And in a way, he was right. They didn't die physically, but death entered the world, and they died spiritually. And it was more awful than they could have possibly imagined. Our sin while we may not see the immediate consequences of it in our lives and somehow think it's going to be okay, it is not. It's not, first of all, because it affects our walk with God. You know, we can be incredibly adept at hiding our sin from everyone, but we cannot hide from God. Achan assumed that by digging a deep enough hole and hiding the things that belonged to God in his tent, that no one would ever know. And you know what? He was absolutely right. No one would ever know that was there, but God did. You know, and we try that. We, we may not hide our sins in the dirt, and that's maybe your burying bodies, but, but we hide them other places. We hide them deeply within in locked rooms that we never let anybody see. And somehow we think that it's going to be okay because nobody else knows. There's nobody else sitting here with me while I'm looking at this computer. There's nobody else with me while I'm in this place or saying these things or doing these things. But God knows and here's the harsh reality. It matters. It matters because God cannot bless sin, and we cannot walk 
joyfully before God when it is present, when unrepentant sin remains in us. We're not, we're not talking about the reality of sin. We are sinners. We will always sin. What I'm talking about is that unrepentant sin that we refuse to deal with in our lives. And you know what the most troubling aspect of this is? The great eternal God has promised that He will never ever leave us or forsake us, and yet we quickly, so willingly, walk away from Him. Simply to have things that we think we need or desire. Barrett read for you the process as James describes it. This is what happens in our hearts. Each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. There's nobody else to blame. It's what I want. And after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, James says, gives birth to death. See, it hasn't changed since the garden. When we willfully disobey God, the penalty is death. And even if we are indeed His child, the penalty is that we no longer walk with Him. We have walked away from Him. And it not only affects our walk with God, it affects our service to God. No one knows about your sin but you. That isn't true. You know. You do know. And the awareness and presence of unrepentant sin changes us because what we're saying when we refuse to deal with the sin that's in our lives is that God is irrelevant to us. His holiness is irrelevant to us. Being set apart for God to be His servant and His witness is irrelevant to us. It's secondary to our own wants and desires, and sin weakens us and weakens our faith and betrays our love to God to the extent that it takes away our courage. And I'm not just talking about the big things, murdering someone, adultery. I'm talking about the little things that daily eat away at our souls, the anger, the arrogance, the self-righteousness. It affects our ministry. It affects our walk with God. A friend of mine, Brian Chapel, tells a story about he was a young man, bought a brand new car. He and his dad went out and picked out one of the great American success stories, the Plymouth Cricket. <laughs> you know, one of, one of those uh, Japan imports slapped on with an American label and, and um, uh, didn't last long. And in Brian's particular case, uh, the car ate up starters on a regular basis. And the problem was he couldn't take it off. It required a special tool that they used in Japan to get the starter off. And so to replace the starter, it had to go to the dealer. And when they went to the dealer, it got costly. And so his dad, after two starters, decided, we're not doing this anymore. And so they send to Japan and get the tool. They're going to take care of this. The tool comes, and he very, Brian very proudly wraps it in a towel and sets it in the trunk of his car so that the next time they could fix it themselves. And the next time came, he went, opened his trunk, took out his tool, but unbeknownst to him, not only did the cricket eat up starters, the trunks leaked. 
And the towel that it had been set in had soaked up the water and sat there, and over the course of the time between starter changes had turned the tool into a pile of rust. The exact perfect tool for the job, ruined by the constant drip, drip, drip of water into the trunk. And you see, that's how sin affects us. It doesn't just kill us, but that constant drip, 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 that constant reality of the consequences and the effects of sin in our lives brings us to the point that when the time comes to be used by God, we are not fit. Our sin affects us. Don't be deceived. But our sin doesn't just make us useless and ineffective for the kingdom of God. Our sin affects others. One of the, the second great lie of Satan is that I'm not hurting anybody but myself, so leave me alone. Simply isn't true. Achan's sin certainly affected others, didn't it? Achan's sin caused God to destroy his entire family. Now, of course, they were living in a patriarchal society where the patriarch was the head for the entire family. He represented them, and therefore all that belonged to him, including his family, suffered the punishment. We don't live in such a society, and God no longer works that way today. But our sins still affect people around us, particularly our families. There's some obvious ways that we see families destroyed by sin. The anger of parents as they abuse their children. The neglect of parents as they have more love for work and money and things than they do the responsibilities of the husband, wife, father, mother. Alcohol and drug abuse. Adultery. There's not a person, I, I dare say there isn't a person in this room that hasn't been touched by one of these things. You know what I'm talking about when I say the sins of the fathers and mothers are visited to the generations that follow. But some of the things are a lot more subtle. Being distant, being withdrawn. I know when I am not dealing with sin in my life, I really don't want to talk to anybody because I don't like myself. I don't want people asking me questions. Not pursuing and nurturing our spouses because we're in love with other people or other things or ourselves. Don't be deceived. Your sin does affect others. And Achan's sin not only affected his family, it affected the entire nation of Israel. The entire, or the army that was sent to Ai is defeated, and men died because of Achan. One man's sin, one man's desire to have something for himself, to disregard the commands of God that his own wants could be fulfilled, brings death and defeat to Israel. <laughs> wow, think about that. And nothing's changed, it's true. We don't have the army of Israel anymore, but we have the people of God. We have His church. And the Bible tells us very clearly, Paul teaches that as members, we are part of what? One body. 
And that's not just some kind of theoretical concept. Paul says this is the reality. Every one of us has a very integral part in the people of God. Every one of us has been given a gift or an ability or some way in which we are by God's very design to be serving this people. And unrepentant sin always does one of two things in the church. It either creates dissension as we bring into the body of Christ our anger or our resentments or our selfishness or our laziness and unwillingness to do God's will, God's calling in the body, or it weakens the church because we aren't pulling our weight. (laughs) We're not doing what Jesus has recreated us to do. And as a result, the church just goes limping along. I've been pastoring churches for 30 years. It's been true everywhere, some worse than others. But God did not create His church to simply limp through the world. Jesus Christ pulls His body together that we might have victory, not only in our own lives, but victory before the world as we represent God in His glory and His greatness and His grace. But rather, we seem far too content to simply point fingers at one another to to criticize the pastor or the elders and, and just go find a place that's more suitable for our needs. And when we get there, what happens is we contribute to their limp too. The message of God to His people is we have, we have to look inside. The problem is not out there. There's problems out there, yes. But the greatest problem we face is here. But this problem is dealt with, and He gives us the grace to also deal with the problems that are out there. And so, brothers and sisters, sin affects us. It affects those around us. And then finally, sin robs God of the glory that He deserves. Verse 9 is, is so pointed, so telling. Joshua cries out, What then will you do for your own great name? Joshua was lamenting that one of the consequences of Achan's sin is that the nations are no longer afraid of God. And now it's Israel that is melting in fear and not the Canaanites. And to a great extent, the same thing has happened to us. What is the standing of the church in the world today? It's not much. And you know why? It's because of sin. It has nothing to do with cultural change. It has to do with us. There's not a person in here who cannot give multiple examples of key figures in the Christian church that have fallen into public sin and disgrace for any variety of reasons. The shepherds of the flocks being more concerned for their own desires rather than the glory of God. And beyond that, there's just the general ineffectiveness of the church to speak to our culture because we're afraid of losing members, we're afraid of losing money, we're afraid of being laughed at, and so we stay silent. And we understand somewhere on some deep level that it's very difficult to speak loving truth to the world about its sin when we are unwilling to deal with our own. 
And just like the church as a whole, we far too often have no real personal witness to the world. And why not? It's because the world around us knows us. They work with us. They live with us every day. They see our foibles. They see our sins. They don't see change and growth in our lives. And we know that if we talk to them about the grace of Jesus and repentance of sin, they're just going to look and laugh. Because they don't see it here. And in all this, the great name of God, the one that we came this morning to worship, the one that we adore, the one that who has loved us, is, is slandered before the world. We say, we serve a God who is ineffective and whose grace is insufficient to change me, and His love does not move me. <laughs> Can you imagine how painful that must be to God? When I was a let me end here in just a minute. When I was a little boy, my dad was a coal miner. One of his jobs was to inspect old mine shafts down in southwest Virginia in the mountains. And, and these were old. These were the shafts that had the rails running down the middle with pony hair in between where the Shetland ponies would pull the carts in and out of the mines. So one day, he asked me to, to go and inspect the mines with him. Um, the reason he had done that, I found out, is that growing up in that environment, it was a rough country, growing up in mining towns in southwest Virginia, and as a 10-year-old boy, uh, I had developed a number of habits. Uh, one of them was that I had a mouth that could shame a sailor. As a 10-year-old boy, I knew every curse word in the book, and I could use it effectively and fluently. But of course, I hid it from my parents. And one day I was out in the yard playing with some friends and let out a particularly colorful string of, of words and, and immediately noticed my mother standing on the back porch. And I thought, oh no, life is over. But oddly enough, she said nothing. And so I began to think, maybe she didn't hear. I knew I would find out when my father got home. And so before he got home, I went to my room, shut the door, preparing for my imminent doom, because my father was a pretty stern fellow. He came in, I'm just waiting for the footsteps down the hallway, and they never come. And I'm like, yes! <laughs> they didn't hear. So about two weeks later, I get this invitation from my dad to go inspect the mine shafts, and so I was thrilled, and I go with him, and we go down deep underground, and we're going through inspecting things, and finally he says, let's turn out the lights. He said, I want you to experience what absolute darkness is. And so we sat down on the rail, turned out our lamps, and it was beyond what I'd ever imagined. I mean, your eyes, there's nothing for your eyes to adjust to. No, I don't care how long you sit there, you put your hands straight in front of your face, it's gone. It's, it's this incredible picture of absolute blindness. And while we're sitting there in the dark, I hear my father's voice and he said, your mother had a talk with me last week. I thought, he brought me down here to kill me. And they will never find my body. And so I'm just waiting for the blow. And my father's quiet voice said, you know when you were born, I was so thrilled. He said, I was so thrilled I gave you my name. So proud of you. 
He said, I just want you to know that it broke my heart to hear my son with my name speaks the way that you do. And that was all that he said. And I wished he had hit me because it broke my heart. And it forever changed the way I spoke. You see, our Father stands before us. And He said, I have loved you more than you can possibly know or imagine. When I created you, it brought such joy that when the Spirit did its work in you, I gave you my name. And now it breaks my heart to see how little you care. That's our reality. And what do we do? Very quickly, three things. Number one, acknowledge your sin. Stop hiding it. Number two, repent of it. Don't just say you're sorry. Sorry is irrelevant. Choose by the power of God to turn around and live a different life. And then three, stop sinning. Use whatever means you must to put it to death. Kill it. If it means confessing it to people around you, confess it. Any consequence you suffer isn't nearly as bad as the heart of God who loves you being broken. And then give glory to God for the change. Because if you do the first three, He will change you and tell people of His grace and glory. And then we experience the thrill of victory and put to death the agony of defeat. Think about those things. Amen.